0: to be a master criminal, a super criminal, I was born to be? welcome to season two episode 11 of me and my friend pete another donuts and dimes production the podcast where we explore all things the amazing spider-man comic book series i'm your host peter parker's persnickety pal jerry if this is your first time with us welcome if it isn't welcome three times and back once this week we're running through the amazing spider-man number 36 when falls the Meteor. Before we get into it, just want to say I'll be at New York Comic Con this year, and I am super excited. With COVID keeping us all housebound the last couple of years, I wanted to play it safe, however, so I'll only be there October 9th. No booth. This is a one-man operation and all. But I will be wearing my favorite Spidey t-shirt that combines two great Spidey tales, Spider-Man No More and Back in Black. Where he's wearing his black costume and walking out of an alley looking over his shoulder at his classic red and blue duds that he's just thrown in a trash can if you see me say hi i may have a high society pin or two or a hundred to pass out segue nailing it this podcast is completely listener supported so if you haven't please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash hspp in the key keeper or high council tiers patrons get a bonus episode every time we release one here. This week's bonus episode sees DC's Garfield Logan's unique ability to shapeshift into any animal imaginable become a full-on epidemic as the children of San Francisco fall victim to the dreaded Sakusha disease, turning the streets of Fog City into an emerald green zoo. That's later. Right now, question. You ever wonder what would happen if a man had the unbridled self-confidence of a Kanye West and none of the ability to make dope beats? Well, look no further as this issue gives us our first glimpse of Norton G. Fester, aka the looter. We've got meteors passing gas. We've got Gwen Stacy throwing shade. We've got the kids of ESU giving Pete a hate parade. We've got space exhibits and grounding pounds at 30,000 feet. Just another day in the life. Here on me and my friend Pete. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got The Amazing Spider-Man, number 36, When Falls the Meteor. Let's swing. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. Before we begin... In May of 1966, Spider-Man made his first appearance in Daredevil The Man Without Fear number 16, which was kind of serendipitous history-wise because if you recall, Daredevil made his first appearance in a Spidey comic in THE Amazing Spider-Man number 16, Duel with Daredevil, or Spionce and the Fleabag, here on Me and My Friend Pete, back to. This had a sagacious script done by Smiling Stanley, phantasmagoric penciling by Johnny Romita, that's the senior. Iconographic inking by Frankie Ray and lacrimose lettering by Artie, it's in the name Simek. For a spotlight on Daredevil, you can listen to our bonus episode from season one, Man Without Fear, number one, or Lawyered, here on Me and My Friend Pete. Back to, the story opens to Foggy and Karen watching the news on their brand new color television, where photos of Spider-Man are being shown. In them, Spidey's doing battle with a villain and his purple-clad gang of goons named the Masked Marauder, who I'm thinking hired his henchmen straight from Dr. Octopus after he retired the whole Master Planner alias because they're all in that purple city getup. Doesn't matter what they're wearing, though, because the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, through three panels, is putting the first rule of the Golden Liability Playbook to work. Fist! Swing him if you got em. While Matt Murdock, aka Daredevil, listens to the report, wondering if Spider-Man is also the photographer who takes pictures of Spider-Man. He's absolutely right, but then starts thinking zebras instead of horses, thinking he's reading too many fantasy stories lately. Gotta stick to what you think, DD. You hit the nail on the head. Foggy gets Karen upset by smack-talking Daredevil, then apologizes to her, saying he just hates when she's impressed by another man. Matt is pressed. He likes Karen too, but Foggy's his best friend, so he doesn't want to make a move that'll step on Foggy's toes. Meanwhile, the purple-helmed, green-caped, masked Marauder has a new plan to stop Spider-Man from interfering in his plots. He's going to have every one of his goons dress up as the old horn-head Daredevil and then have them continuously attack our hero so he doesn't have time to focus on the mass Marauder. Making me wonder who's supplying these guys with the materials and seamsters slash seamstresses to create such spot-on replicas. But that's a question for another time. Right now, one of the daredevil fakes proves he isn't a man without fear, stepping up and saying he wants no part of a plan that puts him in a fight with our hero and tells the mass marauder to do it himself. The mass marauder's like, yeah, and zaps the man in the eyes with beams from his own eyes. He's not going to kill the guy, though. He orders the man to be dragged away until he's ready to follow the mass marauder's orders. He just blinded a man to make a point. The mass marauder puts his plan into action and Spidey begins getting attacked all throughout the city. One at a time by guys dressed up as Daredevil who all manage to get quick attacks in before fleeing the scene. Spidey says he's going to catch up to DD and when he does, dot, dot, dot. Meanwhile, back at the law firm Nelson and Murdoch, Karen drops hints that she wants Matt to ask her out. But there's nothing doing. She leaves and Matt, quickest costume change in the game Murdoch is Daredevil in seconds out the window and high above the city we know and love. Less than 15 minutes later, the sign of the spider lights up the side of a building near where DD is swinging, which I guess is pointless to the blind hero, but you know Spidey always has one in the chamber when he's popped a signal. He shouts, okay you crimson cut up, stay where you are. We're gonna have a little powwow, And we got action as they get into a beautifully drawn fight sequence. John Romita Sr. working. Daredevil, confused the whole time about why they're fighting, Spidey pissed that people keep attacking him out of the blue. A police officer notices the fight, calls it in, and as soon as the message hits the airwaves, the masked marauder in another part of town is ready to go. He tells his henchmen to execute Plan W. Sidebar, if you're now on Plan W, if Plan A through V were a wash, it may just be time to pack this up and get a job that doesn't require breaking the law. Just a thought. Either way, he runs outside and jumps into his semi-trailer, yeah, that happened, to begin quarterbacking Plan W. And Plan W? Heading to the World Motors Center to steal the plans for the most powerful auto engine ever devised, plans that he's going to alter for his own purposes. How? by parking the semi-trailer outside of the World Motor Center and using a large tube that extends from the trailer and up onto the window of the center. Once attached to the window, inside the trailer, his henchmen step into the tube and are shot up using a jet of air pressure through the tube and into the center. Four of his Purple City goons now in the building, they proceed to the safe and blow torch it open, grab the plants and head back to the truck where the masked marauder has just been found by guards who have arrived early on a new schedule. Probably daylight savings time. They scream they've nabbed a masked marauder. But no! He uses his Vizzy Blast. What? It's comic books. Let it go and come on. And blinds both men temporarily just before his goons show up with the plans for the new engine. Masked marauder says it's time to execute maneuver E, which is essentially split up and meet back at base later. And everyone's like, great, let's do that. They lower the tube from the center's window and back into the truck before the back door of the semi trailer raises up revealing a stingray muscle car a ramp rolls out and the mass Marauder peels off from the scene if you're going for under the radar why not drive a lincoln town car why are you driving one of the most expensive muscle cars on the planet at this time meanwhile spidey and dd are still having a beautifully drawn fight on the rooftops of nyc each thinking the other is in league with the mass marauder before Daredevil, using his billy club wire, pins Spidey against a thin chimney stack and takes off. Spidey escapes the cords, but Dee has gone. So he heads back home to check in with Aunt May, then hits up the daily bugle where JJ is tirading. Apparently there's been a fight between two masked vigilantes and blueprints stolen for an XB390 prototype engine, and Jameson's demon photographer doesn't have any pictures. He shouts at Pete to get out, saying he hates everyone today. And Pete does, thinking if Daredevil can turn bad, how can he trust anyone? Meanwhile, Matt Murdock is wondering the same thing. How could Spider-Man turn bad? But when he gets into Nelson and Murdock, Karen and Foggy greet him, telling him that Daredevil is the one who's gone rogue, that every paper in the city is saying so. Except the Daily Bugle, of course. Of course! The only paper that is absolutely accusing Spider-Man of being the villain. Foggy, hating on both heroes, says he wouldn't be surprised if they were in cahoots with each other and in turn, the mass marauder. Matt tells him he's on one, that this can't possibly be what's happening, but gets a little overzealous, forcing Foggy to tell him not to fly off the handle, and he asks Matt how can he be so sure. Matt, calming down, says it's only a hunch. Meanwhile, the mass marauder is trying to decide who to sell these blueprints of the engine to. He's fielding offers from underworld organizations, syndicates, even nations. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Spidey's back on the scene searching for the Masked marauder, a needle in a haystack stuffed into a big apple, to be sure. And his Spidey sense goes off, letting him know Daredevil's close by. He perches on the sheer wall near the window of Nelson and Murdoch and sees Foggy, Matt, and Karen inside, guessing, of course, that Foggy must be Daredevil. Never mind that Foggy's a husky guy and DD has the build of an Olympic-class gymnast. Inside, Matt, his sense is infinitely better than Spidey's, realizes the old webhead is just outside of their window, a moment before Spidey comes crashing through it, shouting for everyone to stay where they are and nobody will get hurt. He grabs Foggy up by the collar and lifts the man off his feet before raising a fist screaming, all right, Hornhead, the masquerade's over. Now this is where I learn the truth about you. Matt thinks he can't stand by while Foggy's in danger, but he also can't help his friend without giving away his secret identity. And that's where this issue ends. Foggy hemmed up, Spidey, Play 1, D.D. caught between a rock and a hard place, and us moving on to our main episode without a backward glance. The credits. We've got script and editing by smiling Stan Lee, plot and artwork by swinging Steve Ditko, and lettering and stuff by art. It's in the name Simek. The cover. The cover of this issue has the amazing Spider-Man in Spidey New Roman, shade red and a royal purple in a white negative space. Beneath this, on the left side of the page, we get a screen caption box. Spidey as you like him, in college, in trouble, in action, action, action. If they ain't talking my language, I don't know language. And yo comprende espanol poquito. Or, je comprends français. I know my language. And we get a gorgeous cover shot of this episode's Panel of oh. the Week. From a 180-degree shift in perspective. Stage right, just beneath the screen caption box, we see the looter in a white and purple costume. His eye holes are narrow slits with black lines running north from the middle of the slits towards his forehead. His mask is white except for the area where his mouth would be, which is a royal purple that extends down and around his neck. He's got on a silvery white shirt with purple sleeves, silvery white villain underwear with purple spandex running down his legs, tucked into silvery white boots, and a pair of silvery white gloves. <laughs> the man likes silver, what you want me to say? In his right hand, he's gripping a purple gun with a shiny goldenrod light pulsing from its barrel. And his left hand, he's swinging it and connecting with the jaw of our hero, the amazing Spider-Man, who is airborne, suited and booted, both arms wide and outstretched towards the villain, leaping through a scale model of the solar system. The sun blazing behind him stage right, green planets orbiting the center of our universe, Spidey has leapt through their ellipses easily, his body almost perfectly straight. This is a truly beautiful image, Ditko showing off his mastery of anatomy as usual. And I could stare at this for hours, but in the words of Lincoln Osiris, We got ground a couple. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the amazing in black sketch lettering and Spider-Man in a sketchy purple inside of a lavender caption box. Beneath this, set in a blue square and a goldenrod screen caption box, the lettering large and stylized red reads, When falls, the meteor. I like the way Meteor is written here, there are speed lines like it's shooting across the page from left to right. And beneath this, we got action in one of those good old worst case scenarios for the web spinner. He's high above the city we know and love in the shadow of a skyscraper, the buildings in the background gray, his back to the earth. The worst position you want to be in, in free fall. But you gotta know at this point that Spidey does some of his best work in free fall. His left foot is bent at the knee. His right's kicked out in front of him. His left hand has the finger stretched wide above his head. His right is in a clenched fist. I'm thinking he's about to drizzy maneuver the crap out of the villain he's facing as we've got the first official appearance of a purple and white clad menace who has his back to us and a large circular green harness on his back that looks like a futuristic camping backpack. Bedroll included. The backpack has four rods extending from the middle of the circle in a square shape towards the screen caption box above the two foes. And the man has come to play. He's swinging a left cross at our hero and clearly has the upper hand. Beneath them, stage right, we get a golden rod caption box letting us know who this new foe is. In which Spidey must face the mortal menace of the uncanny looter. We turn the page. Page two opens to a caption box. A meteor falls and we're high above who knows where as a red jet of fire flies from stage right to left towards Earth with a yellow coma. That's the tale of a comet. Past a silver jumbo jet towards a mountain clad landscape below where I imagine it crashes into the ground. A man reaches the scene. We see a man with sandy brown hair, a scraggly goatee, high cheekbones, and thick eyebrows approach the scene. He's wearing a green fedora, a maroon jacket, blue checkered button-up, green slacks, a large olive rucksack, and olive gloves. It may sound like this doesn't work, but the man is actually quite stylish in my opinion. He's giving me big Indiana Jones vibes right now. Shout out to Harrison Ford. So this guy, his left hand pressed against a large boulder, is staring into the crater created by this meteor. And he's shouting because nobody talked without screaming in the early days of the 616. He's screaming that he knew he'd find the meteor here because he saw it land, and it's just the type of meteor he's been looking for. And our Titanic tale begins. The man lifts the meteor to his face, and we find out now why he was hunting this space rock. Now I'll be able to prove that meteors contain microscopic living matter. With this, I might solve the riddle of the universe. There's an idea in some scientific circles that meteors may have contained some of the building blocks of life that helped begin life here on Earth. I've added a link in the Patreon show notes to an article in Scientific American by J.R. Minkle that goes more in depth on the idea, but this is one of the things I love most about comics. Comics have a tendency to explore these ideas in a way that sparks curiosity in the reader, at least in me. I didn't have this idea sparked by this comic. It was actually a story from Uncanny X-Force written by the great writer Rick Remender and drawn by mind-blowing artist Jerome Opeña called The Dark Angel Saga. Amazing story that really did what's being done here, taking a bit of science and crafting an amazing story around it. I bring it up because I only have one physical copy of this comic, so it may never get done here on me and my friend Pete's bonus episodes, but I can't recommend a comic's run stronger than I can this one. Science rules! Back to, But this guy's not only here for the advancement of science or solving riddles. Not at all. His pupils practically dollar signs. He continues. Fame and fortune will be mine! Translation? they do anything for clout. Shout out, Offset. Shout out, Cardi B. But, Norton G. Fester is soon to learn that it takes more than a craving for wealth to solve universal secrets these days. It also takes money. I must have money to finance my research into the origin of life in the universe. And we see Fester, what a name, is saying this in a lab with a few other scientists wearing lab coats, and they are all working. Fester just walked in in a green suit and blue tie, holding the meteor in his hands. And it's got to be said, Fester's got a great head of hair. It's Sandy Brown and very James Dean in its look. Good for you, Fester. Either way, Fester needs cash. But an older doctor with the gray Carl Winslow working in an olive shirt and red bow tie lets Fester know they're not the ones who are going to give it to him. He says they're only interested in making new miracle ingredients for hair tonic, so Fester better go try a bank. And I get it. Two out of the three doctors in this room are balding. They're trying to improve their own quality of life. They don't give a damn about the universal questions. How am I gonna turn this comb over into lush, luxurious hair? I bet that's what they're thinking. Vanity detracts from all universes. Back to... And try he does with these not-too-surprising results. We're looking inside of an office through a glass window with loans written in large blue letters where Fester is standing pleading his case for cash for his scientific experiments. But when I become as famous as Darwin, Galileo, Aristophanes, I'll pay you back with interest." Paraphrase from Wikipedia. The Englishman Charles Darwin is considered one of the most influential scientists of all time in the fields of naturalism, geology, and biology, mainly due to his research on evolution. In 1859, he released a book, On the Origin of Species, that turned the scientific community on its ear with his theory of evolution, that said all species of life descended from a common ancestor. By 1870, less than a dozen years later, the majority of the scientific community had accepted his theory as fact. The Italian Galileo di Vincenzo Bonaiuti di Galilei, I hope I'm saying that right, known as Galileo for short, was an astronomer, physicist, and engineer who's been called the father of observational astronomy, modern physics, the scientific method, and modern science, best known by the general public for his defense of Copernicus's idea that our solar system is heliocentric. Translation, the planets revolve around the sun. But he's also known for disproving the immutability of the heavens. His work with crafting telescopes, which became a lucrative side hustle for him, his studies in topographical charts on the moon, his discovery of three out of four of Jupiter's largest moons orbiting the gas giant, which helped to discredit Aristotle's theory that all heavenly bodies circled the earth, His observations of Venus tore apart Ptolemy's geocentric model of the universe and forced scientists who wanted to continue their belief that the Earth was the center of the universe to adopt the hybrid geo-slash-heliocentric view. He was the first person to observe Saturn and Neptune through telescope. His observation of sunspots kicked Ptolemy's geocentricism while it was down and uppercutted the idea of a geoheliocentric system while it was on shaky legs. His studies of the Milky Way and stars helped bolster Copernicus's theory of heliocentricism. His belief in heliocentrism put him at odds with the Roman Catholic Church and would have cost him his life had he not recanted, which he did, and the result of this inquisition saw Galileo on house arrest for the rest of his life. Galileo the inventor is responsible for, but not limited to, a geometric and military compass, the earliest known thermometer in 1597, the idea that sufficient understanding of the orbit of Jupiter's moons would make it possible to determine longitude here on earth, He's one of the first to understand sound frequency and was one of the first people to try to measure the speed of light. His basic principle of relativity provided the framework for Albert Einstein's special theory of relativity. Believe me, I could literally go on all day and well into the night on the man from Galilee. But suffice to say, he left a stamp so powerful on the scientific community that even after his house arrest he lived under until the end of his life, he received the last laugh in the end from beyond the ether. On October 31st, 1992, over 300 years after Galileo's death, Pope John Paul II admitted that the church was wrong in condemning the polymath for his belief that the earth rotated around the sun. The lesson there? Sometimes you're just way too ahead of your time and you gotta let the minds of men catch up. And last but not least, Aristophanes, aka the prince of ancient comedy, aka the father of comedy, was into a different science altogether the science of making people laugh and think about the human condition. As a comic playwright and poet in ancient Athens, Aristophanes' words given life in plays were powerful. One example of this power? The great philosopher Plato, believing that Aristophanes play clouds, led to the trial, condemnation, and death of Plato's mentor, Socrates. At the city of Dionysia, an annual contest for playwrights where their written works were performed, Aristophanes, at presumably age 18, won his very first play Entered, the Banqueters, and then went back to back, winning the next year with his second, the Babylonians, both now lost to history. At the Linnea, another such event, he came away with Ws three times at least with the plays Acarnians and Knights, and Frogs. He was considered a master in several poetic forms, iambic trimeter, tetrameter catalectic verses, and lyrics, and a master of crafting plays using the themes of old comedy inclusiveness, fantasy and absurdity, the resourceful hero, the resourceful cast, and complex structure. His plays often condemned war profiteers, wealthy men who took advantage of the general population, and one person in particular, an Athenian general named Cleon, who Aristophanes saw as an, quote, unscrupulous, warmongering demagogue, end quote. Thanks, Wikipedia! Back to Where Were We? fester wanting the title of father of the universe is asking for a loan and saying he'll pay it back with interest right but the banker isn't having it he calls fester generous for wanting to pay back the loan with interest but tells the man no and suggests he borrow from another institution fester future father of the universe telling the banker in no uncertain terms that he'll be sorry the scientists will be sorry all of them will be sorry before leaving, and I imagine slamming the door behind him. But, no NG Fester is not the type to take no for an answer. If he were, this would be the shortest Spider-Man tale on record. Fester is back in the lab, now in a white lab smock, green slacks, and brown loafers. He's leaning against the counter with his left hand pressed on its surface and gripping a phone press to his ear with his right hand. In the foreground, we see the chunk of space rock he pulled from the crater in upstate New York, oval-shaped, gray, and about the size of a basketball. And Fester, still in search of donors, isn't doing any better here. He's thinking, all my few remaining friends turn me down. They call me a fanatic, a nut, just because I'm an undiscovered genius. They mock me because I'm too smart to work, too clever to hold down a job. Everyone's jealous of me. And I gotta say, Fez, few people are going to be jealous of you being able to hold down a job. He shouts into the phone that he doesn't want the person's money and he'll get along without it. Translation? You lose! Good day, sir! Which is good, because I'm sure the person doesn't want to give Fez his money, so everybody wins. We get to the final panel, and the man called Fester truly is becoming more and more oblivious. He throws on a pair of protective goggles, takes a small mallet and chisel, and begins to go to work on the meteor thinking. Let's do what this man thinks. Just because I flunked science in school doesn't mean I can't discover the secret of the universe. I have as much chance as anyone else. Even if I can't raise money for a fancy lab and expensive equipment, I'll just chip away on my own. Maybe I'll accidentally stumble over something like Isaac Newton. The man flunked out of science and thinks he's going to stumble onto something like Sir Isaac Newton who absolutely did not flunk out of science and is considered one, if not the greatest mathematician and physicist of all time. This man is putting himself in the same class as the man partially responsible for developing infinitesimal calculus. When you play with skills, good luck will happen, Fez, not whatever the hell you're trying to do. And I'm not alone in the assessment. The caption box to close the page reads, you guessed it, friend. NGF is a part time nut. That's knot, what it says! Even a I pussycat like him can have a lucky break, if that's what you want to call this. Page 3 opens to the result of Fez's hammering as he's sprayed full on in the face by a green jet of gas shooting out of the space rock where the chisel is still lodged. He shouts that he must have hit an air pocket and has to get away from it. Coughing, gasping, Fester falls back against a loose, upright cabinet. He slams into the bottom corner of the cabinet, shouting that the gas won't stop clinging to him that it's seeping right into his skin. So there's the injury, and the insult comes quick as the cabinet slams down onto him, pinning him to the floor from the waist down. Then, for a few silent moments, all is quiet. And we get a great panel of the gas just seeping into his face, surrounding his head, and wafting towards the ceiling, his arms splayed out at his sides. Until Fez regains consciousness as the gas finally begins to clear. He massages his head, wondering aloud why he feels so different. He raises his goggles in the gutter between panels and says he's gotta get whatever's on his back, the cabinet to be sure, off of it. Before rolling onto his back and lifting the cabinet with his right hand easily. Still laying on the floor, staring up at the cabinet in his grip. He screams that this isn't possible. The cabinet weighs over a hundred pounds, and he's lifting it like a feather. He shouts that he's gotta try something else quick. And what does he try? The man walks across the lab and picks up a safe with that same right hand. Standing in the final panel, the safe raised above his head, he monologues about how his increased strength must have come from the meteor gas, that it's goodbye, Norton G. Fester, professional failure, <laughs> know thyself, and hello to, he doesn't know yet. On four, been at the waist, groping his calf muscles, he says he has to examine himself more, that even his arms and legs feel different, superpowered. He crouches low in a red negative space shouting, I feel some stride, so alive, as that I can do anything. I've got to be sure it's not my imagination. I've got to try something. Before leaping ten feet into the air and onto the outside of a catwalk above him. And he's still in shock, but sure, he's not imagining things. He grabs the railing of the catwalk in the next panel, and bending it out of shape easily with both hands, continues his monologue. It's what bad always dreams of those these random fantasies. How wonderful How fitting that it happened to me. I'm too proud to reach such a golden opportunity. Can't stop testing my strength. I'm a powerhouse. We get a beautiful panel next to Fester, his pointer finger beneath his nose, his face bathed in a goldenrod light that turns his hair red, and Fester's coming to that age-old fork in the road all those blessed with superpowers must face. Do good or do ill. Never more would I have to worry about getting money with a grant. Look now, with my superhuman power. The world can eventually grant for Morgan G. Fester. If I plan carefully. He goes left. And now, before some brand eck dropout suggests that we change the name of this man to The Amazing Fester Man, we'll switch our scene to the campus of Empire State U, where we find peerless Peter Parker engaged in one of his silent swinging soliloquies. And we find a friend Pete, goldenrod vest, white button-up, SJBs, and brown loafers, walking towards ESU with his left hand in pocket, as usual. He's just off-center, closer to stage right, as crowds of people socialize around him. He's the only person walking alone, a fact not lost on the Goldenrod Kid. Due to my I'm recent battle bad. with Craven and the Malted Man, man I've been forced to miss a lot of classes. classes. And what's I'm equally bad is the fact that everyone's had a chance I'm to get bad bad. to know each other and to form close friendships, except I'm Mrs. Parker's bad luck I'm nephew. But better than never. I'll start it's making up the charm now. Pete's gonna turn it around carpe the diem, he approaches a group of four guys to open page five and starts making with the niceties. Hi fellas, great day today, isn't it? How's it going? To their credit, two out of the four guys say they're fine and can't complain, but all four of them turn their backs to him and get out of there. Pete, watching them leave in the next panel, thinks that he may not be a part of this solar system, that all the students have formed their own little groups, and Pete Parker, Esquire, is on the outside looking in as usual. But wait, what's this? Is Petey's luck finally about to change? We see Pete walking towards the blonde bombshell herself, Gwen Stacy, who's wearing a pink clip in her hair, red full-length dress, and talking to a young lady with Auburn hair in a green polka dot blouse and matching pencil skirt. Auburn says she knows Gwen's wrong about that Parker guy, and now she's gonna prove it. She approaches Pete in the next panel as Gwen looks on from around the corner and introduces herself as Sally Green. She says she has English literature with Pete and asks if he remembers her. Pete, thinking the tide is finally turning, says of course. Sally invites him to a get-together at our house later on, and Pete, of course, says of course he'll go. Sally is smitten in the next panel. Why, he's just as sweet, sweet as, as, as can as be, Pete. and oh, oh that, that dreamy smile. smile. Yeah, Pete with the crest white Colgate smile. You're back in the game. Sally tells him she's glad he can come, as Pete thinks he's glad no one's luck can stay bad forever. And Gwen, still peeking from behind the corner, puts a hand to her hip and spills salt all on the ground of ESU. I don't don't understand. understand. I never never thought they'd hit it it off so well. well. She She must must have 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 said the secret secret word. word. She was hoping Sally got the cold shoulders that she's accustomed to. But Sally says the wrong thing to close out the page. I was hoping you'd come because I'm so anxious to have at least one boy with brains instead of all those brawny athletic types. Pete thinks, his blue eyes wide. Oh no, not again. Will I always be thought of as nothing but a an fake And scowling opens page six with, Tell you what, Sally, if I can make it, I'll let you know. I might be pretty busy tonight. Sally, of course, is taken aback. She stutters through a, Well, all right, before heading back over to Gwen. She says she tips her wig to Gwen, that she thought Pete was finally acting human, but the platinum blonde had him pegged 100%. And Gwen, probably relieved Pete wasn't just snubbing her, says Sally is now welcomed to the club. Pete, walking away from both of them, thinks, I hate, I hate it, it to do, do, it, do it, but I had to. I don't, don't want, want another Betty, Betty Brent situation developing again. She, she only liked like me like for my brains, brains, too, and I couldn't I go through that kind of heartbreak again. again. So Pete's trying to reinvent himself in the eyes of the ladies without the label of having a big brain and heading to a party where every girl thinks he's walking gray matter would be bad for his new image. Okay, hearts and flowers time is over. Now, back to the Department of Daring Do at a midtown bank we find... We're in first person mode, watching what looks like our hand push open the doors to said bank as a security guard with civilians inside looking on, says we can't come in because it's almost closing time. But whoever we are in the first person perspective replies, I'm the country, I can't. Before the camera shifts and we see we were, for a brief moment, the looter. Shouting he can do anything, he drops the guard easily with a left straight punch. Before, to the astonishment of the watching crowd, leaping 15 feet into the air over the counter of the bank, landing on the teller's side, thinking, it was a stroke of genius to employ this costume and the name Looter. The shot value alone earns me precious seconds. This gives me the ready cash I need. He begins stuffing a brown sack with dollar bills. The bag filled, he leaps back over the counter and onto page seven, the sack in his left hand, and pulls a ray gun that fires a beam of blinding light from who knows? He probably got it from the masked marauder. As people cover their faces, he bolts out of the front door of the bank, leaps onto the hood of a yellow taxi, and lets off another round of light into the neighborhood. The light from this gun has to be insanely strong because he fires it in broad day and the area outside is still filled with goldenrod light. Another example of a villain in a Spider-Man story hustling backwards. Where did the looter get this gun? This could easily make you a fortune if you patent and market it as a non-lethal form of subduing villains, but not to the looter. As he leaps from the car onto the caboose of a delivery truck, he thinks, my greatest greatest talent talent lies in crime. crime. There can can be no doubt. doubt. I was born to be a master criminal, criminal. a super Super criminal, criminal. before bounding from the truck and up onto a nearby roof thinking that I was born born to be the the looter. Minutes later, at the apartment lab of Norton G. Fester, posters of the universe he abandoned on the wall behind him in the next panel. Fester pulls his looter's mask from his face with his left hand, gripping a wad of cash fresh out of his sack with his right, shouting, It worked but this was only the beginning. Each will be bigger. More spectacular. And in the days that follow, the looter keeps his vow, employing his super strength to the fullest. He becomes a one-man crime wave. And we get a shot of the looter from the waist up in a red negative space, both hands clutching cash while beneath him we see a wall safe opened with cash spilling out of it. A large floor safe opened with cash spilling out of it. And an armored car, its back doors blown open with, you guessed it, cash spilling out of it. So maybe the looter was right. Maybe he was born for this life. But the more he seizes, the greedier he gets. And now it is time for our swinging star to enter the scene. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity page. Page Page 8. Just in time to witness Spidey on the prowl as the amazing Spider-Man web swings high above the city in search of the looter, thinking there's no trace of the villain and he probably gave up studying for the one night the looter is out playing Pinochle. Quipping, but Spidey's not going to give up the hunt. But I've got to find him, him. sooner or later. later. If he's He's as dangerous, dangerous. as super-powered as as they they say, say, I'm one of the very few who might stop him. him. And I'd sure not like sure to see how that, that dazzle, 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 dazzle light of his works. Sparks. So the action junkie and the scientist and him colliding. Both want to meet this looter. Meanwhile, the object of Spidey's attention has a brand new worry of his own. We see Fester in his lab where he's built a device to suck gas from the meteorite and I assume breathe it in. But Fester's got a problem. The meteorite has no more gas. Fester's not worried. The villain with a knack for winging it shout that he's just got to find another meteor and crack that bad boy open for the gas inside. Except there hasn't been up to this point any meteorite pumping out gas that gives people superpowers. That and maybe the gas doesn't work on another person the way it works on him. Most people bitten by an irradiated spider like Peter Parker would drop dead. Have radiation fall out of a barrel and onto them like Matt Murdock would drop dead. Find themselves in a gamma radiation explosion would drop dead. Outside of Bruce Banner, most dudes with an origin story don't repeat the processes of their origin story because the chances they survived were already one in a million. This guy festers saying odds be damned. I'll find a super rare space rock that's still kicking out gas and inhale it again. I'm starting to think he's insane. insane. And now that we have pretty well telegraphed what's gonna happen next, let's rejoin Mr. Parker a few days later. We see Pete being an evermore student as he's want to do. He's in his goldenrod jacket, a white turtleneck with thin horizontal black rings around the collar. And of course, his SJBs. Fashion on, amazing as usual. He's waiting in line for a new space exhibit, thinking he can't go searching for the looter right now because it's still too early. So he's going to kill some time here. While he waits in line, he's thinking, If this was this a was few months, months ago, ago, I'd be, I'd be going, going in with, with Betty. Betty. And, and uh, i got to stop, stop thinking, thinking about, about her. her. Forlorn, thy name is Parker. While Pete's fighting his thoughts, the former beauty queen of Standard High joins the line in a red go-go dress on top of a and black striped shirt. She is style flaring and spots the goldenrod kid immediately. Gwent thinks that this could be fate, a chance to really get to know Pete, and thinking she'll accidentally bump into our friend on the inside, she decides she's going to do that little thing. Nine opens to a beautiful long horizontal of the inside of the exhibit. There are space capsules, photos and posters of different planets in the solar system in shades of purple, models of space shuttles, people middling about, and a friend, Pete. He has his back to us staring at a large futuristic hunk of machinery with his left hand on his hip, off-center, towards stage right, while Gwen watches him over her shoulder, towards stage left. Pete, young scientist that he is, is thinking that he'd love to build something like this someday, while Gwen, I hope he'd see me and come over to me, but he's studying those displays like they're pinups. The Goldenrod Kid! academically aroused pete walks past gwen and into the next panel towards a chunk of meteorite making the blonde bombshell wonder if he's ignoring her or really hasn't noticed that she's there gwen you're so vain you probably think not seeing you's about you directly outside the window another pair of eyes sights the same object the looter has just arrived on the scene and is standing on a thin ledge barely wide enough for his feet peering into a window of the science exhibit and his goal is simple That's That's what I'm looking looking for, for, the new meteor. If it contains a gas gas pocket, pocket, I've got to have it to ensure my power. power. Thus, without a second thought, the looter enters our scene once more. I imagine the looter lifts the window before leaping down onto the scene, shouting for the crowd to disperse and calling them all weaklings. Pete, his eyes wide with shock in the foreground, doesn't know what the looter's doing here, but he's not going to let the guy get away. He sprints into the final panel, past Gwen again thinking, Peter Parker can't tackle him. I've got to change change to Spider-Man. While Gwen thinks Pete's an unmitigated coward that our friend is frightened and running away. Gwen, if you only knew. On 10, the looter gets right to work. As the crowd breaks for the exits, he races forward and hits a security guard with a left hook that connects with the man's face so hard, his whole head disappears behind the impact effect. It is a hilarious panel. Ditko, Big W but he's just getting started. The looter hops over a small one-man jet thinking he's gonna grab the meteor and make tracks before a voice from off-panel shouts, Hold it, looter, your running days are over. The looter asks who said that, but gets his answer before the sentence is done leaving his mouth as the sign of the spider lights up the wall and floor in front of him before the golden liability makes his presence known. The looter wonders what Spidey's doing here a second before we got action. Spidey leaps towards the looter, shouting that they've got to get to know each other better. But the looter, springy in his legs himself, leaps back screaming, I don't, I don't And when Spidey doesn't move, he cracks our hero with a left that connects with Spidey's jaw. With so much impact, he flips head over feet, the looter repeating, I said, out of my way. Spidey, agility on. Hall of Fame first ballot, lands on the fingertips of his left hand and Ah, shouting, I heard you, I heard you, cracks the looter with a right that sends the villain ah. reeling. But while the looter's lost his balance, Spidey thinks that the villain may be stronger than he is and he'll need his wits as much as his power in this battle. And he's not wrong, because page 11 opens to the looter regaining his balance. He may be a crap scientist, but the man clearly has spent some time in the boxing ring. He cocks his right fist back to faint Then throws a snap jab connecting with Spidey's nose, shouting that Spidey was looking for trouble, and he found it. But Spidey eats those and answers the left jab with a left straight of his own whipping. Thanks for the advice, Masked Man, but I still prefer getting it from Dear Abby. Dear Abby, created by Pauline Phillips and now run by her daughter Jean Phillips, is an advice column here in America that has been running since 1956. Thanks, Wikipedia! If Spidey needs advice, he'll go to the experts, but when it comes to looking for trouble, the king of whip with chambered quips will always defer to the golden liability playbook, namely, play one. Fist, swing him if you got him. And he follows the left straight with a right hook that sends the looter's jaw towards the ceiling, the last position you wanna be in, in a fight. Spidey thinking the whole time that if the man had more experience, It might be, so long, Spidey. Spidey. The looter falls through the gutter and into the next panel, where on his knees, next to what can only be described as a 31st century vase look-alike, tips the log over, Spidey shouting, hey, look out, that's worth a fortune. But the looter, as predictable as villains come, asks Spidey why that would be his concern. It's Spidey's, though. He's a lover of the arts and sciences. He leaps forward, grabbing the expensive flower pot with both hands. Leaving himself open to a right straight from the looter. The SFX in the background summing it up perfectly with a clip. He has just clipped the golden liability. Spidey's head jerks back, but he's got the grit and always commits, so his jaw stays tucked as he thinks the looter outmaneuvered him. And the looter's not done. In the final panel, he slams a giant vase into Spidey's face and chest, pinning our hero against the wall with a loud thoom, shouting, The bad emergency that can affect my story. And kind of better as you seem to be. But it takes more than a few shattering blows to stop the amazing Spider-Man. If that ain't the truth, because page 12 opens to our panel, panel of, of the week. Ditko, punching the clock, has drawn a beautiful image of a model solar system. The sun at its center, because Copernicus was right. And planets held in orbit around the giant yellow orb with metal rods. Beautiful, beautiful to look at. I imagine the planets and moons rotating around the sun as Spidey gets spidery. He leaps from stage right, his body ah. stretched out through the orbiting spheres, both arms in front of his face towards the retreating looter screaming. Come back, little Shiva! I want to make sure you didn't skin your knobby little knuckles. Sheba is an ancient kingdom mentioned in the Old Testament, so I don't know why Spidey called the looter this. If you know, let me know in the comments. But maybe just stands Jewish heritage shining through. Either way, the looter, hot footing towards the exit, Wonders aloud what it takes to stop the King of Swing from Forest Hill's Queens. <laughs> That's a good question. The answer? More than you've done, Lunar! Spidey's agility gets him through the solar system replica, oh. and his left fist connects with the looter's chin again. He says if the man would just hold still, it'd all be over before he knows it. Before a close up panel where Spidey, face to face with the looter, hits the man with another left. <laughs> I keep keeps punching him, he keeps coming, coming back, back for more. Home. I wonder if he's playing off an election election bet or something. And fun fact, this comic is in 1966, the first year where the Voting Rights Act of 1965 went into action and African-Americans voted in record numbers. So I'm sure a lot of people lost election bets that year because there's no accounting for the marginalized and the unknown. Back to... In the next panel, the looter gets wise. Thinking Spidey's too skillful to fight, he pulls his dazzle light gun from his waist, his ace in the hole. My dazzle gun! It's never failed me before, and Brett said He fires the gun, leaving the entire floor of the space exhibit in a goldenrod light. Everyone freezes, including our hero, in a dramatic pose with his hands out of his sides, his fingers stretch wide, while everyone else shield their faces with their hands and arms. I love the shading here. Spidey, still as a statue, is a black shadow with red outline. This is gorgeous, gorgeous art. But you know our favorite neurotic won't stay still for long. On 13, he shuts his eyes and continues the chase as the looter races away, still firing at our hero over his shoulder. But he doesn't know Spidey's eyes are just a bonus. All I need to do is shut my eyes and follow him easily by means of my ever-loving spider sense. Despite Spidey's immunity, everyone else freezes, unable to see, and the looter carpes the DM. He sprints towards a towering rocket and pushes it off its display platform easily in the direction of the stunned and unmoving crowd. Spidey springs into action, leaping 10 feet across the room, ha! landing on a nearby diorama, oh! putting himself between the people and the danger. He catches the falling rocket, thinking the three people beneath the missile who were about to be pancaked wouldn't know what hit them. Spidey, replacing the missile on its platform, thinks, i am make sure this gizmo is steady again, and then I better lose myself fast. As soon as their vision becomes normal, the crowd is sure to blame me for what's happening, like they always do, and I don't think he's wrong. So he takes no chances. In the final panel, he's made it out of the window and onto the thin ledge the looter came in five pages ago, shouting that he's lost a villain and there's no way to know which direction the man ran off in. Thus, a few minutes later, tight. We get Afran P back on the scene, fixing his collar as he descends a flight of stairs into the space exhibit, thinking there's no reason to let the day be a total loss. He runs into Gwen Stacy at the bottom of the stairs and finally noticing her, He asks, Hi Gwen, enjoying the exhibit? But Gwen, thinking Pete's a coward, replies in a dialogue balloon dripping icicles that she was until just now. Pete, as is becoming the usual when talking to Gwen, is confused. He asks, Huh? Wait, what's wrong? What did I do? Gwen, eyes shut, turning her nose up, replies, Perhaps it's what you didn't do. And thinks the Golden Rock Kid didn't stay and try to help. You didn't either though, Gwen. I'm just saying. Pete scratching the back of his head in the next panel thinks How can anyone so so pretty pretty. be such a (laughs) nut? That's what he thinks! A nut! (laughs) He's not the only one conflicted. Gwen's thinking And yet, it's hard to believe believe that that anyone so manly 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 looking could be a a coward coward. if only I hadn't hadn't seen him him with my own own eyes. eyes. So Pete may look like a coward in his actions, but he looks like a hero with that build. And she's not wrong on that latter thought. But, back in his little hideout, Norton G. Fester has his own problems. Although, as we can see, they aren't matters of the heart. Fester, his mask off, surrounded by machinery, I'm pretty sure at this point he doesn't know how to use, is shouting that he was stupid to go into that job without planning. That now, he's going to plan carefully, leaving nothing to chance. But if you recall, when he first got the powers, he said that he was going to plan carefully and leave nothing to chance. This guy, I'm star- I'm convinced. The looter has short-term memory problems. He is doing everything by the seat of his pants. The camera pulls in tight and we get a close-up of his face in a green tinge as he continues screaming at the top of his lungs that he didn't take Spider-Man being there into account at all. He grabs his depleted space rock in a great close-up of his left hand, shouting that he has to have that meteor. And scratching his chin with his right, his left hand on his hip, he finishes his manic monologue. Hesitant, but this time I set my bones carefully i can for anything. Again, short-term memory loss. Five minutes ago, he screamed the same thing. The next day. Fester in a green suit and black fedora with matching band has gone back to the space exhibit to plan things out right. But the curators are taking no chances now. There are armed guards packing revolvers, patrolling the exhibit, making Fester think he can't attack with another frontal assault. But he's got to figure something out Because he needs that meteor to ensure he won't lose his powers. Again, no guarantee he'll lose his powers. And while Fester makes his plans, Pete's on the scene. The scene? ESU wearing a white button-up and SJBs. He's walking through campus with a book in his hand as Flash. Fashion on trash as usual in a green shirt and tan slacks. Grips a football behind him stage right and stage left. Gwen Stacy in a gray dress and purple and polka dot blouse stands with Sally Green, who's wearing an SJB-colored blouse. Flash, peacocking, shouts towards Pete's back. Hey, puny Parker, none of the other guys are here yet. How'd you like to toss the old pigskin around? Pete replies, can't stop now, Flash. Anyway, if I outthrew you, you'd have a fit. But Flash probably wouldn't. I'm sure he'd take being outthrown the same way he took being knocked out cold when he and Pete threw the gloves on and fought one-on-one in the ring. Namely, paddling down the Nile River and forgetting it ever happened. That was way back in ASM number eight. Spider-Man, the terrible threat of the living brain. Or, in- to in- infinity. Here me and my friend Pete, back to Gwen, listening in, throws her head back, her chin towards the heavens, the best position you want to be in when coming for the Goldenrod Kid. And she says, Peter Parker out throwing flash? That's the funniest thing I've heard all day. Pete, his eyes narrow, having enough, He is glaring at Gwen. He says, tell me Gwen, what did I do to become number one on your hate parade? Like, please tell me, we've barely spoke. Flash, grinning so wide his cheekbones look like they're about to explode, says everybody wants to know. And Gwen, used to the spotlight, knows how to work a crowd. She says maybe she'll tell them sometime when she's not busy laughing. Pete, over the dog and pony show at his expense, says not to let him stop her and gets out of there, thinking as he walks away, why don't I always get interested in girls that can't, that can't see, me see me for dust? Because, Goldenrod. Because. Because what? Shut it, you. Flash, putting a cherry on top of the conversation, says, I admire your good taste, Gwen. If you gotta hate somebody, Parker's the perfect choice. A short time later, we find Puny Parker in a somewhat different guise. The And the golden liability is back outside the space exhibit. His legs bent up near his chest as he grips web lines in both hands, staring into an arts window from above, thinking, The looter had a reason for coming here before, but he left empty-handed. So whatever he was after is still there, which means there's a chance he'll be back. Before racing along the sheer wall of a building diagonally, still clutching a web line in the final panel with both hands. It's probably still too early for him. I'll race home so Aunt May doesn't worry about me, and then I'll return here after she's asleep. We haven't seen Aunt May in a minute now that I think of it. Can we get some screen time for the most loving of comic book caretakers? Back to. But the Looter doesn't show up that night, nor the next, nor even the next. However, at the end of the week, when the exhibit is about to close, we find. The Looter's finally thinking with his head on straight. He's rocking the futuristic green camping pack from Splash Page One, bedroll included, on his back and he's on a ledge above the loading dock in the back of the space exhibit museum where a delivery van sits waiting. The looter's thinking, I knew my chance would come if I waited long enough. They're about to move the exhibit. My timing is perfect. And another fellow feels the same way. Spidey, suited and booted is on the scene upside down clinging to a purple support beam hidden from the looter's view and he's waiting for his moment. My patience paid off. I knew if I watched long enough. And he doesn't have to wait long. In the next panel, the looter, punching the clock, leaps from the ledge and right hand pressed against the top of the truck, squeezes between the space of the truck and the building, shouting down at two guys green jacket pork pie hat and red jacket green baseball cap, both wearing workman's gloves, pushing a dolly loaded with the meteor the looter's been coveting. Then the looter screams, my meteor into the correct position for and now While the guy in the pork pie hat screams, it's the looter! Tossing the guy in the pork pie hat to the side in the gutter between panels, the looter stops in front of the meteorite, saying the men should have realized that for someone as powerful as he, resistance is futile. He snaps the thin rope binding the meteor to its podium and begins attaching special straps onto the space rock, shouting that he planned everything to perfection. But what's that old saying about the best laid plans of mice and looters? I've never heard that one. Spidey's gonna make him go astray. Swinging into the warehouse on a thin strand of webbing, he shouts, hey, looter, you wouldn't leave without saying bye bye to your old sparring partner, would you? The looter spins and, of course, screams our hero's name, wondering how he knew today the villain would make his move. Spidey replies, it's a long story, but if you're really interested, before the looter, again hustling backwards, completely forgetting what he's here for, hurls the meteor at our hero, who catches it easily in his right hand to open page 17, still shouting. I thought so. You don't even want to hear it. He lands behind the truck, Ah. dropping the meteor who knows where, before spraying a line of webbing towards the looter, still giving the man an earful. Why anybody would try to make over the meteor is beyond me, but I guess some fellas would steal anything that isn't nailed down. Does Spidey get the hit? No! The looter leaping backwards, (laughs) presses a button at the center of his chest, and a large green balloon springs from his back, lifting him rapidly into the air as he shouts, (laughs) Ha! Promise, to the As Spidey stares you know up at the flamed villain, audibly impressed, the looter shouts down at him, now 50 feet above the ground. But he's got to be quicker than that. Spidey, probably glad he finally gets to fight in the sky again, gives pursuit, leaping Good. 15 stories up and onto the sheer outside wall of the space exhibit's building ha. in two hops, shouting, Don't crawl too soon, playmate. I'm not tossing in the town yet. The looter shouts down at the webhead that he still won't be able to reach him. But he doesn't know that Spidey does this. I imagine Spidey is on his John Wall right now. I'm him! him. He leaps from the sheer wall and across huh. the street onto another, huh. telling the looter that spider man are a hardy breed, before hopping off the wall huh. and onto a flagpole huh. sans flag. He bounces off the thin rod, Both arms stretched above his head in the final panel, the looter's feet the only thing we can see of the man as our hero shouts, Geronimo! And if nothing else, this is the moment where I realize the looter is dripping with supreme confidence. The King of Swing rocketing towards him to open 18, he calls Spidey doomed, says that our hero can't reach him and that Spidey's going to plummet to the ground. But he doesn't know the second rule of the golden liability playbook. If fists don't work, there's always the shooters. And Spidey, swip, swipping from both hands, is about to teach the man the lesson. His webbing snags the looter's mini hot air balloon, and we got action. Attaching the webbing in his left hand to the bottom of his left foot, still gripping the other strand with his right hand, Spidey shouts, OK now, looter, push the down switch or whatever works that nutty That's balloon. and Let's has. get back to earth. the two men punch the clock. Spidey throws a left cross, the looter throws a right, but both of them miss. It doesn't matter. They're just warming up. The momentum from Spidey's punch spins him around, but he won't let that stop him. He switches the hand, gripping the webbing, and swings behind him with his left, connecting with the looter's jaw. But the villain is proven to be fortified. He eats the blow, swinging right at Spidey's exposed ribcage, screaming. We can only use ribcage. And he's right. But Spidey, switching hands again, spins back around and the two throw right hooks at the same time like the ending of Rocky II. Both missing, Spidey screaming. I only need one hand. One blow is all it'll take. The looter replies that Spidey will never get the chance. And he may be right. Because in the final panel on this page 18, in a goldenrod space, his back to the earth, the looter only legs rising stage left Spidey thinks, Ah, my weapon. Weapon. It couldn't cling securely enough to the smooth smooth surface. surface. I'm falling. As his webbing detaches from the slick surface of the balloon. The looter shouting and laughing the whole time that he warned him. But Spidey is old, hat with his aerial attacks and snagging the looter's left ankle with his left hand's open 19. He tells the villain not to start gloating yet. Of course the looter tries to kick the spider loose with his free right leg. But Spidey is already in his bag. The Birkin? Nope, his doctors. Why? Because he gets surgical. With agility that make Miss Biles proud, still gripping the looter's left foot, he backflips in midair in a golden rod space, shouting, Have you ever considered medical help because of your antisocial tendencies? Before knees bent, mounting the looter around his waist like MMA great John Bones Jones, still talking his smack. Why is it that everyone I fight is overflowing with neurotic hostility? You really want to talk, Spidey. Deluder blocks Spidey's first left hammer fist thrown with his right hand, screaming, you must be mad, you for your life. But he doesn't know Spidey. Spidey replies that he must be mad to be in this lifestyle, period, and cracks the deluded villain across the jaw with a left hook, and begins the world's first aerial ground and pound 200 feet above New York City. I imagine in the gutter between panels, he gives looter a right hammer fist next, then another left, and one more right before we're allowed into the final panel, where Spidey is still quipping, despite the looter having gone silent. I'm not even entitled to fringe benefits. I don't get Social Security or paid vacations or even a Christmas bonus, but it has its compensations. I get lots of fresh air, and I'm my own boss. Say, I'm not boring you, am I? (laughs) Spidey is his own man, his own boss. He throws one final left hook before shouting, Son of a gun! I think he fell asleep on me. How sad. This fight is over. On 20, Spidey says if the man isn't going to play anymore, you knocked him out cold. Spidey, what do you want? Spidey says he might as well see who the villain is, and pulling the mask from Fester's face adds insult to what I'm sure are a fistful of injuries. No wonder he wore a mask. He sure would company beauty prizes, but I never saw him before in my life called the man ugly in a roundabout way. He clambers onto the unconscious looter's back and saying the police will be able to identify the culprit begins letting the air out of the one-man blimp. As the balloon descends to earth, Spidey and the looter in tow, Spidey wishes aloud that he had a livelier playmate. Spotting the police below, he leaps from the balloon and onto a sheer wall of a nearby building. Scrambling up onto its roof in the gutter between panels, we get a great shot of him in the next, on the rooftop, the sign of the spider shining from his belt onto the unconscious looter on the street below, splayed out like a crime scene chalk outline, his parachute unfurled on a building beside him, as Blackman, Bowtie Charlie, and Ike, the police officers, race forward to apprehend the deluded deviant. In Spidey's thinking, I still don't know why he wanted that meteor, but I'll read about it in the paper tomorrow. In Jameson's paper, with my photos in it, I hope. In the final panel of this issue, we get a goldenrod space where a green tentacled blob with yellow spots that resembles Shuma-Gorath minus the eye is standing on two of its tentacles next to a humanoid silver robot. For those unfamiliar with Shuma-Gorath, it's a godlike being that made its first appearance in the comic book Marvel Premiere number ten in 1973, and his first on-screen appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe's great movie Doctor Strange: Multiverse of Madness. I can't help but thinking this creation here. Inspired that. Either way, the captions in this final panel read: Coming next, the menace of the rampaging robots. Enough said. And we're out! Another classic tale with great art from Marvel's premier dynamic duo, Lee and Ditko. I'm glad we got more of Pete's personal life in this one. I was missing it a bit last issue, and I'm really enjoying the dynamic between Pete and Gwen. I have to admit that I'm hugely biased when it comes to Pete's love interest because of the relationship he was in when I began reading the character. But much like the damsel never in distress Betty Brant, Gwen is proving why she has endeared herself to fans all these years. I really enjoy the looter character as well. This is the first time I can recall ever reading a story with him in it as a villain. I think we all know somebody who thinks a bit too highly of themselves. If you've been here, you know I believe in self-confidence and self-determination but that has to be tempered in knowing your limitations and then working towards breaking them. The looter is not that guy. He wanted to be great but didn't believe the work was a part of the process and let me tell you, if I've learned anything in life, it's that like the great Marcus Aurelius said, the struggle becomes the way. If he persevered through lack of funding and support, through his own lack of knowledge, and yes, through his own ego. He may have found himself in the position to be the premier mind in understanding the origins of the universe. But a little bit of power put that idea to rest and he chose instead to take that left fork in the road. The choice was his to make, but I'm going to go ahead and say it may not have been the best. Next episode, we run through ASM number 37, Once Upon a Time There Was a Robot, which gives us the first appearance of the deadly robotics master, Mendel Strom, and the first official appearance of a one Norman Osborn. And we've got Spidey battling robots. So my people, it's what we came to see. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode, but there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support the show on patreon.com HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every time we drop a new episode here where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're back in the DC universe with Teen Titans, volume three, number 14, Beast Boys and Girls, part two, wildlife. Question, what happens when the rare disease that gave Garfield Logan the power to shapeshift into any animal in the known universe becomes an airborne virus that begins infecting the children of San Francisco? Well, we're about to find out. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and your support keeps this crazy train barreling down the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back, and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, a special thanks to that home team, Parker's Dirty Dozen. Sign up now. Vote on bonus episodes. Make it a Baker's. If you sign up before ASM number 50, you'll receive a special thank you lapel pin for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in myfriendpete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at mnmfp underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash hspp. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. That Dusty Trails are calling, so there's no use stalling, but you know the tagline for the people. With great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.